You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 148 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. When we left off last time, Nathaniel Banks, the Union commander in the Shenandoah Valley, was a worried man, since he feared that a Confederate attack was imminent. And in fact, as y'all will recall, the rebel commanders, Generals Jackson and Ewell, had just met on May 18th and during their conference engaged in some sleight of hand in order to keep Ewell's division in the valley so that his men could link up with Stonewall and strike at Banks. Nathaniel Banks' dilemma was pretty much entirely of his own making and could be traced back to his boast three weeks earlier that, quote, there's nothing more to be done by us in the valley. With that one sentence, Banks would become the author of his own ruin, for the powers that be in Washington, namely Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, had then directed Banks to send one of his divisions east to reinforce Irvin McDowell's force at Fredericksburg. As you guys know, the plan was that McDowell would then advance south from Fredericksburg and aid McClellan's Peninsula campaign by exerting even more pressure on the rebel capital. As for Stonewall and Ewell's dilemma, it was created when the Federal Division, commanded by James Shields, exited the Shenandoah and headed for Fredericksburg. Jackson and Ewell both wanted to join forces and hit the Yankees under Banks, who had been left in the valley. But as Ewell understood his orders from Joseph E. Johnston, instead of helping Stonewall smash Banks' reduced force, he was supposed to take his men and leave the Shenandoah and follow Shields' Federals eastward. As we saw last time, though, at their meeting on May 18th, Stonewall and Dick Ewell cooked up an exchange of letters that would cover their backsides as they ignored Joe Johnston's orders and together moved to attack Nathaniel Banks. And so, at the end of the last episode, Banks was worried about a Confederate attack as he used his reduced force to cover two key points, Strasburg and Front Royal. The reduced force left to Banks was made up of the infantry division commanded by Alpheus Williams and then nearly 1,500 cavalrymen. Banks had positioned most of that force to cover Strasburg, which lay along the Valley Turnpike, and he'd stationed only a token force at Front Royal to the east. 
Meanwhile, Stonewall and Ewell, after parting ways after their conference on Sunday the 18th, had set their commands in motion the next morning, aiming to link up along the Valley Pike between New Market and Mount Jackson on Wednesday the 21st, and then together they drive down the turnpike and overwhelm banks at Strasburg. As the men of Jackson's Valley Army marched northward through Harrisonburg, they were told to leave their knapsacks there. Private John Castler of the 21st Virginia wrote that, quote, We knew there was some game at hand then, for when General Jackson ordered knapsacks to be left behind, he meant business. End quote. On the afternoon of Tuesday, May 20th, Stonewall's troops camped outside New Market, near the junction of the Valley Turnpike and the road running east across the Massanutten to the Luray Valley and the Blue Ridge. That day, shortly after Jackson established his headquarters at Newmarket, Ewell rode up. He had, as Jackson's aide, Henry Kide Douglas described it, ill humor on his face. Stonewall, though, greeted his fellow general with rare warmth, telling Ewell he was glad to see him, but Ewell replied, You will not be so glad when I tell you what brought me. What, are the Yankees after you? asked Jackson. Ewell answered, Worse than that, I am ordered to join General Johnston. Just that morning, a message from Joe Johnston had reached Ewell. The orders, dated May 17th, left Ewell no choice. He was required to immediately depart the Shenandoah and march east. It was stunning news and completely upset the little charade that Stonewall and Ewell had constructed on the 18th so that they could ignore Johnston's earlier instructions. But in Jackson's eyes, the opportunity before him and Ewell was too great and the stakes too high for them to be thwarted now. And so while Stonewall required unquestioning obedience from his own subordinates, he decided he wasn't bound by the same standards he demanded of others, and he decided to risk a charge of insubordination, and he suspended the execution of Johnston's orders to Ewell. Jackson fired off a telegram to Robert E. Lee, saying, quote, I am of the opinion that an attempt should be made to defeat Banks, but under instructions just received from General Johnston, I do not feel at liberty to make an attack. Please answer by telegraph at once. End quote. There was nothing to do now but await an answer from Lee, so Yule rode back over the Massanutten to his camp. While Stonewall was contemplating this discouraging turn of fortune, the attention of the Valley Army was riveted upon the arrival of some remarkable strangers. Northward down the turnpike, in neat gray uniforms, with white gaiters flashing to the cadence of their march, beneath flags adorned with pelicans, and behind blaring regimental bands, strode the 3,000 men of Ewell's largest brigade. They hailed from Louisiana, and the most extraordinary of them were the Tigers, tough veterans of First Manassas, who relished their reputation as a battalion of cutthroats, thieves, and other rowdies. To avoid congestion in the Luray Valley as Ewell's troops began their movement, Jackson had asked that the Louisiana Brigade, which was camped near the southern entrance to the valley, proceed around the southern tip of Massanutten Mountain and fall in behind Stonewall's command for the march north. 
The brigade, commanded by Richard Taylor, had made good time, and now orders to halt were snapped out in French, which the astounded men of the Valley Army quickly labeled gobble talk. As the Louisianans broke rank, their bands continued to play, and many of the newcomers joined in pairs, clasping each other about the waist to dance with wild abandon. Artilleryman George Neese of Chew's Horse Artillery later recalled, quote, I, for the first time, saw some of the much-talked-about tigers. They looked courageous and daringly fearless. While the Valley Army was gawking, the commander of the Rollicking Brigade sought out Jackson, whom he had never met. Thirty-six-year-old Richard Taylor was the son of General, and later President, Zachary Taylor. Richard's sister Sarah was Jefferson Davis's first wife, and Taylor was a favorite of the Confederate President. He had been educated at Harvard and Yale, but his military training had been limited to serving as his father's secretary during the war with Mexico. Richard Taylor had obviously attained his present high rank through his family connections, but even so, he turned out to be a natural leader. Taylor was a disciplinarian after Stonewall Jackson's own heart. Shortly after he assumed command of the Louisiana Brigade, some of the unruly tigers raided the guardhouse in an unsuccessful attempt to free some incarcerated comrades. The raiders were arrested, and a few hours later, two of the ringleaders were tried by court-martial and sentenced to death before a firing squad comprised of their fellow tigers. At that point, the Tigers' commander, Robideau Wheat, asked that the odious task of execution be assigned to some other unit. Wheat, the burly giant who had been terribly wounded at First Manassas, usually got his way, but in this instance, Taylor turned him down cold, and the sentence was carried out by the firing squad in full view of the assembled brigade. Taylor wrote later that as an example of discipline, quote, punishment so closely following offense produced a marked effect, end quote. Taylor earned his men's respect not only for his even-handed discipline, but also for his interest in their welfare. For example, to cut down on straggling, he had insisted that the men bathe their feet in cold water at the end of each day's march. He taught them how to treat sores and blisters on their feet, and instructed them how to select properly fitting footwear. Taylor recalled that, quote, before a month had passed, the brigade learned how to march, end quote. And so, as he sought out Stonewall to introduce himself, Taylor was understandably proud of the marching abilities of his men and their sharp appearance. What he saw in Jackson, though, was less impressive. Taylor later said that the officer guiding him, quote, pointed out a figure perched on the topmost rail of a fence overlooking the road and field, and said it was Jackson. Approaching, I saluted and declared my name and rank, then waited for a response. Before this came, I had time to see a pair of cavalry boots covering feet of gigantic size, a mangy cap with visor drawn low, a heavy dark beard, and weary eyes. Jackson asked how far Taylor's men had marched that day and by what route. Taylor answered, Kieseltown Road, six and twenty miles. You seem to have no stragglers, observed Stonewall. Never allow straggling, Taylor responded. Stonewall said, You must teach my people. They straggle badly. Just then the band of the 8th Louisiana struck up a waltz, to which the men danced 
and after watching for a few moments in silence, Jackson said disapprovingly, Thoughtless fellows for serious work. Taylor replied that he hoped, quote, the work would not be less well done because of the gaiety, end quote. Stonewall, however, said nothing, and that was the end of the interview. But before very long, Taylor would be given ample opportunity to show that his Louisiana brigade could do a lot more than dance. Since Jackson and Ewell were technically under Joseph E. Johnston's authority, Robert E. Lee had been walking a fine line recently, ostensibly acting as a conduit of information between Johnston and his distant subordinates, but in reality, Lee had been keeping in close communication with Stonewall because the two men were of one mind regarding the strategy to be followed in the Shenandoah, while Joe Johnston was never quite on the same page as Stonewall and Lee perhaps due to the fact that most of Johnston's attention had been understandably absorbed by McClellan's advance up the peninsula ever closer to Richmond. Not that Lee had exactly been working behind Johnston's back in order to coordinate strategy with Stonewall, but Lee had actively involved himself with Jackson's movements in the valley, advising and encouraging Stonewall to pursue his ultimate goal of attacking Banks. As we mentioned before, the situation was further complicated and confused by the fact that, for whatever reason, Johnston chose not to use the telegraph to communicate with Jackson and Ewell, and so the horse-carried messages from Richmond involved a two- to three-day delay. That meant there were the slower horse-carried messages going to and from Johnston, and then there were the wired messages passing between the commanders in the valley and Lee. At any rate, Jackson had his answer sooner than expected, since on Tuesday night, a courier delivered a message from Richmond, giving Johnston's reply to Stonewall's May 18th telegram to Lee, which Lee had passed on to Johnston. Now in this latest message, Johnston conceded that he was too far away to keep up to date on what was transpiring in the Shenandoah. So if Jackson and Ewell thought that conditions were favorable to strike a blow at Banks, then they should attack. Finally given the green light for an attack on Banks, Jackson and Ewell must have breathed a sigh of relief as they met again on Wednesday morning. At that conference, they settled on a new plan. Now, instead of Ewell crossing west over the Massanutten and joining Stonewall for a direct assault on Strasburg, Stonewall would cross east over the Massanutten and join Ewell in the Luray Valley, and together they would march north and overwhelm the small Union garrison at Front Royal. By taking Front Royal, they would neatly outflank Banks' position at Strasburg. By capturing Front Royal and placing their commands between Banks and Irvin McDowell, the two rebel generals would compel Banks to abandon Strasburg without a fight and withdraw down the valley toward Winchester and the Potomac in order to preserve his lines of communication. Before Jackson and Ewell parted ways to set their new plan in motion, another message arrived from Joe Johnston. Robert E. Lee had passed Stonewall's urgent May 20th wire to Johnston, and as further confirmation of his new attitude, Johnston now wrote to Jackson, saying, If you and General Ewell united can beat Banks, do it. 
Having been given the green light to continue their preparations for taking the offensive in the valley, Jackson and Ewell lost no time in moving forward with their new plan. It mattered little to Stonewall that his men were exhausted. From a camp near New Market on the night of May 20th, Corporal James E. Hall of the 31st Virginia had scrawled in his diary, quote, We are very much wearied by the march, in fact virtually worn down. A night's rest appears to do us no good, just as sleepy and slow in the morning as when we stop in the evening, end quote. On the evening of May 22nd, artilleryman Lanty Blackford wrote to his mother that the battery had been marching 23 days straight with only three days of rest. He said, quote, We are nearly broken down as men, as well as can be to get along at all. An order just come to cook rations for three days and rise at 2.30 a.m. tomorrow to continue the march. This capped the climax, and we are really disconsolate. Three weeks of virtually nonstop marching and fighting in some of the most rugged country in Virginia had exacted a toll on Jackson's foot cavalry. After taking the month of April to rest, Jackson's infantry logged 200 miles in the 20 days between May 3rd and 22nd. The effect on regimental ranks was shocking, especially in the All-Virginia Division that had been under his command since March. In those three brigades, which had served with him since the first day of the campaign, Jackson claimed a peak strength of 8,597 men on May 3rd. But no one could have predicted the desertions and breakdown that would hobble Stonewall's force during the following three weeks. On May 3rd, Jackson claimed the Stonewall Brigade had 3,681 troops in the five Virginia regiments. By the time the brigade plopped down in the Luray Valley 20 days later, fewer than 1,600 men were present. No attempt had been made to account for the 2,000 soldiers who had deserted and straggled over the previous 20 days. The loss of 55% of the force is even more astounding when one realizes that the brigade didn't suffer any casualties at the Battle of McDowell on May 8th. In all, fewer than 5,000 men of the 8,600 who had been present in Jackson's division on May 3rd were still present in the ranks when it entered the Luray Valley to link up with Ewell's command on May 22nd. The six regiments formerly belonging to Allegheny Johnson's command felt a similar strain. The condition of the soldiers, as alluded to in their diaries and letters, was worsened by breakdowns in the commissary and quartermaster departments. Supply problems in the form of shortages of corn and oats also affected the cavalry. The shortage of feed also impacted the mules pulling the Army's supply wagons. Ewell's division had the freshest legs and were generally better supplied than Jackson's men, but Ewell also suffered from desertions, although not to the the extent plaguing Stonewall's command. Still, though, perhaps 1,000 to 1,500 new recruits that had swelled Ewell's numbers in mid-April, found a way to disappear during May. Altogether, the Confederate War Department in Richmond believed Jackson and Ewell had about 18,000 officers and men when they set out to attack banks. But in reality, their actual strength present for duty couldn't have exceeded 14,000 and was likely closer to 12,000 effectives.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Stonewall marched his men eastward through the New Market Gap in the Massanutten and into the Luray Valley. Once across the South Fork of the Shenandoah River near the village of Luray, he linked up with Ewell's division. The combined forces of Ewell and Jackson started out early in the morning on Thursday, May 22nd, with Stonewall in overall command. The seven infantry brigades, 20 companies of cavalry, and 48 guns moved north down the river road toward Front Royal. It was the largest force that Jackson had ever commanded. From Luray to Front Royal, the road was macadamized in many parts, providing a smooth and speedy passage for the Confederates. When the sun dropped behind Massanutten Mountain on the evening of the 22nd, the rebel troops lit their campfires along a 14-mile stretch of the road. Ewell's division camped in the van, starting with Trimble's brigade one mile north of the hamlet of Bentonville, a point just 10 miles from Front Royal. The rest of Ewell's men stopped behind Trimble's soldiers, with Richard Taylor's Louisiana Brigade resting six miles south of Bentonville. Behind the Louisianans were the men of Allegheny Johnson's former command, and then Jackson's original Valley Division. The Stonewall Brigade, completely worn out from the marching and fighting throughout the winter and spring, camped toward the rear, about three miles north of Luray. The army set out early in the morning of Friday, the 23rd. Taylor's brigade took over the point position from Trimble's men. One regiment marked time while several brigades passed them that morning. This was Colonel Bradley T. Johnson's 1st Maryland. Diaries and letters from the Confederate Marylanders confirmed that they became the rear guard of Jackson's entire army, which stretched 11 miles or more along the road as the various units marched onward toward Front Royal. By 8 a.m., the head of Jackson's army reached a point five miles from Front Royal, with the 1st Maryland bringing up the rear. The Marylanders were in a state of near mutiny over a bitter disagreement about their term of service. It was probably Dick Yule, or perhaps Stonewall himself, who held the 1st Maryland in place while every unit behind them marched by. 
One Marylander said he considered it, quote, the worst possible condition, one half under arrest for mutiny, the rest disgusted with the army, and the colonel disgusted with them, end quote. At approximately 8 a.m., Stonewall Jackson initiated one of the most puzzling episodes of the entire Valley Campaign when he sent a courier riding back the column to deliver a message to Bradley Johnson. The note, signed by Jackson, read, quote, Colonel Johnson will move the 1st Maryland to the front and attack the enemy at Front Royal. The army will halt until you pass, end quote. The receipt of the order initiated a dramatic chain of events. Johnson delivered a wonderfully motivating speech to his men and succeeded in getting at least 200 of them to pick up their arms and fight. Then the Marylanders hustled forward. Stonewall's unusual order, though, Johnson's speech and the Marylanders' reaction to it are noted in every history of the Valley Campaign, but those same accounts pay little attention to time and distance. Stonewall's courier carried the dispatch the length of the column, about 11 miles, which would have consumed at least an hour. 15 to 20 minutes were required for Johnson's speech and the Marylanders' preparation for their march. Diaries and letters of the men in the 1st Maryland provide convincing evidence that they marched at a pace of 3 miles an hour, taking at least 3 hours to reach the front of the army. Therefore, the total elapsed time of Jackson's halt, taking into account courier, speech, and subsequent march, must have been a minimum of four and a half hours. The lengthy halt explains why the Confederate attack on Front Royal took place in the mid-afternoon and not in the morning. The obvious question that begs to be asked is just why Stonewall would march at the break of dawn on Friday morning only to then halt his men for more than four hours and risk being observed by Yankee pickets while he killed time five miles from Front Royal, all to bring up a regiment with clearly questionable fighting ability. Strong evidence supports the probability that Jackson, before he called the halt, had a good idea of the composition of the weak Union force garrisoning Front Royal, so he probably knew that garrison was made up of the men of the Union Army's 1st Maryland. Most accounts of the battle, therefore, simply explain away Jackson's odd orders to his own 1st Maryland as his wish to pit the two opposing 1st Marylands against each other and perhaps buck up the disaffected Confederate regiment. It seems unlikely, however, that the unsentimental Jackson would have begun a march at 4.30 a.m., only to stop his army for the rest of the morning, merely to engage in this little drama. It doesn't seem probable, then, that Jackson called a halt merely to bring the Marylanders to the front of the column. The likely conclusion, therefore, is that although the regiment hustled forward during the halt, their movement wasn't the cause of the halt. So why did Jackson call the halt? Gary Eckelbarger, in his book, Three Days in the Shenandoah, Stonewall Jackson at Front Royal in Winchester, says that he believes the answer can't be known for certain, but that it may be gleaned from an unpublished report submitted by Lieutenant Keith Boswell, Jackson's chief engineering officer. Four days earlier, back when Jackson still planned on attacking banks at Strasburg, he'd sent off Boswell and also Jedediah Hotchkiss to ascertain the location and strength 
of the Yankee force defending Strasbourg. Jackson, of course, subsequently changed his mind about the attack and came up with a new plan that called for assaulting and overwhelming the Union garrison at Front Royal, and so he recalled both Boswell and Hotchkiss, but neither man had rejoined the army by Friday morning. Boswell did end up finding Jackson an hour or so before the attack on Front Royal, and Echelbarger thinks Stonewall may have actually called the halt that morning to wait for one of his two map makers to rejoin the army. Echelbarger thinks Boswell's report, in which he describes subsequently spending Friday afternoon making maps of the area between Front Royal and Winchester for Jackson and Ewell, strongly suggests that Stonewall was thinking ahead about the operation he would conduct once the Yankees at Front Royal had been dealt with. In other words, Jackson perhaps delayed the attack on Front Royal so that either Boswell or Hotchkiss could rejoin the army and start working on maps for Stonewall and Ewell for the next phase of the operation, after Front Royal fell. Echelbarger admits that we may never know for certain what Stonewall originally planned to do after he disposed of the small Union garrison at Front Royal on May 23rd mostly because it took Jackson the rest of the day to accomplish that task. Stonewall advanced his entire army onto a country lane that led to Goonie Manor Road, a well-graded route that led along the shoulder of Dickey Ridge and then straight into Front Royal. One mile outside of town, the Confederates halted briefly on the height immediately south of Front Royal. Here is what here is where Belle Boyd stamped her imprint on campaign lore. Her description of running up the hill to deliver a warning to the approaching rebels is remarkably consistent with the version of the story provided by the two staff officers, Henry Kyde Douglas and Campbell Brown, who witnessed the event. Boyd gave Douglas information she deemed important for the pending attack although her intelligence about federal strength and deployment overestimated the size of the actual force in town. Jackson diplomatically wrote a note of thanks to Bell Boyd after the battle, even though she provided no new information to affect Confederate decisions that day. Stonewall's own scouts, drawn from members of Ashby's cavalry who lived in the area, had already given him a good idea of the composition of the Yankee garrison. That the Confederates' First Maryland was already at the head of the column when Bell Boyd made her appearance indicates that Jackson had already received the scout's report prior to her arrival on the scene. The Confederate attack took place between 2 and 2.30 Friday afternoon. Front Royal was quickly overrun by Wheat's battalion from Taylor's Louisiana Brigade, one company of the 6th Virginia Cavalry, and the 200 or so Confederate Marylanders still on their feet after they'd hustled to the head of the army. Only one company of Union Marylanders guarded the town itself, and they were overwhelmed in minutes by the onrushing rebels. By 2.30 p.m., Front Royal was securely in Jackson's hands. But then Stonewall's troubles began. Colonel John R. Kenley of the Union First Maryland stubbornly held his position on Richardson's Hill, one mile north of Front Royal, with the two branches of the Shenandoah River at his back. With two Parrot rifled guns and 600 infantrymen on the height, Kenley stood his ground for nearly two hours. 
Amazingly, he outnumbered the rebel infantry thrown against him for all but the last half hour. From 2.30 to 4 o'clock, only Wheat's battalion, consisting of about 250 men, and the Confederate 1st Maryland, about 200 men, were deployed against Kinley's force. When no one came up to support them, those rebels merely held their ground at the base of Richardson's Hill. The lack of support for Wheat's Tigers and the Confederate 1st Maryland was so odd that 20 years later it led Colonel Johnson to speculate that, quote, it was evidently General Jackson's intention to make us whip the enemy by ourselves, end quote. But the missing support actually seems to be due to another odd twist to this battle, and that is the fact that the whereabouts of Richard Taylor and the 7th, 8th, and 9th Louisiana regiments can't be ascertained for certain during this time period. No record of the activities of these 2,000 men between 2.30 and 4 p.m. exists. They had seemingly disappeared. Kenley's stand on Richardson's Hill was also aided by the poor performance of the Confederate artillery on May 23rd. This failure was due to the lack of preparation by Colonel Stapleton Crutchfield, Jackson's chief of artillery. Crutchfield followed a guide to the crest of a dominant ridge looming one mile southwest of the Federal position. From there, Crutchfield called up batteries to deploy on the spot and bombard Richardson's Hill. Amazingly, though, the first three batteries Crutchfield ordered up provided only three useful guns, rifled pieces capable of dueling with the Yankees' parrots across the way. Only one of those Confederate rifled pieces was brought into action in the first hour, and the other two weren't unlimbered until after four o'clock, and so so throughout the afternoon the two Union guns fired virtually unopposed. Crutchfield was notably apologetic in his official report written two months later. Compelled to explain why the three foremost batteries in Ewell's command yielded only three useful guns, Crutchfield lamely explained that, quote, The division of Major General Ewell had only joined us a day or so previous, and I was therefore unfamiliar with the composition of his batteries, end quote. One wonders what the Army's Chief of Artillery considered more important during the day or so previous, particularly during the hours-long halt south of town. He obviously wasn't taking note of the composition of Ewell's batteries, even though Crutchfield knew they would be the first available during the upcoming battle. Faced with these mishaps in infantry and artillery deployment, it's no wonder that in a revealing moment of frustration and desperation, Stonewall was heard to exclaim, Oh, that my guns were here. Order up every rifled gun and every brigade of this army. Finally, beginning at 4 p.m., the 6th Louisiana came up and scaled Richardson's Hill. Then, in a belated effort to suppress the Yankee cannon, Jackson ordered Lieutenant Boswell to find a new height on which to plant Confederate artillery, one that turned out to be just 400 yards from the Union position on Richardson's Hill. But the new artillery position was never used, for Kinley retreated before any of those Confederate guns could be unlimbered. As Kinley began to withdraw about 4.30, the 8th Louisiana made its appearance. The Louisianans worked their way to the east, flanking the Union position by crossing the railroad bridge over the south branch of the Shenandoah River, then extinguishing the fire set by Kinley's men on the turnpike bridge across the north branch. 
After retreating across first the south branch of the Shenandoah and then the north branch, Kenley briefly redeployed his two guns on Guard Hill, but by five o'clock he withdrew from that height also. He attempted to escape with the remaining artillerymen, two companies of cavalry that had shown up mid-afternoon, his own 1st Maryland, and three companies of Pennsylvania and New York soldiers that had acted as rear guard throughout the afternoon. Together, these 800 Yankees headed down the Front Royal Winchester Turnpike, putting distance between themselves and the tired Confederate infantry who stayed behind, partaking of the bounty captured in the Federal's camp and at the railroad depot. On May 23rd, Confederate cavalry turned in its best performance in the entire Valley Campaign. Earlier in the day, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Florney's 6th Virginia Cavalry had been sent out to destroy a section of the Manassas Gap Railroad, three miles west of Front Royal. But Florney returned in time to send seven companies of cavalrymen to chase down the retreating Yankees. The four leading companies of rebel horsemen caught up with Kinley five miles north of Front Royal, and a brief but vicious fight ensued. When the dust cleared, all but 100 Union soldiers had been killed, wounded, or captured at the cost of 26 Confederate casualties. Stonewall Jackson's victory at Front Royal was costly, not in casualties, but in time. Most of Kenley's men were overrun and surrendered after 6.30, and the sun set half an hour later. More than 12 hours earlier, Jackson's lead elements had begun their march from a mere 10 miles south of Front Royal, outnumbering the small Union garrison by at least 12 to 1. Even considering the peculiar pre-battle halt Jackson called south of town, Kenley shouldn't have escaped, particularly with two rivers flowing behind him. Even a middling performance by the Confederates should have resulted in a Union surrender south of the river branches, not four miles north of them. By any reasonable estimate, Kenley's force should have been overwhelmed and destroyed by four o'clock, giving Jackson three precious hours of daylight to start on the work of moving around Nathaniel Banks' flank and getting into his rear. But that hadn't happened. Nevertheless, as the day ended, Jackson still had a chance to accomplish that most elusive of Civil War tasks, the complete annihilation of an enemy force. Jackson's army closed up throughout the night of May 23rd, and by the morning of Saturday, the 24th, he probably had about 12,000 men in a six-mile area around Front Royal. Nathaniel Banks' force of about 4,500 infantry and 1,500 cavalry was concentrated around Strasburg, 12 miles to the west. Outnumbering Banks by two to one and having turned the Yankee commander's flank, Stonewall still had a golden opportunity to destroy his outmatched foe. Next week, we'll see if Stonewall can turn that opportunity into reality. But it should be noted that the sloppy Confederate performance at Front Royal highlights a shortcoming of Jackson's generalship that was evident at Kernstown and McDowell and will be repeated in subsequent battles too. And that is that while Stonewall was obviously a gifted commander on the operational level, uh, that is getting his men into position to fight a battle, he was a weak tactician 
that is, his battles were poorly managed. This can be seen at Front Royal, where the result was a four-hour battle that should have been over in half the time and in a more concentrated area. At Front Royal, Jackson was troubled by infantry and artillery deployment mishaps, but his secretive nature also factored into his difficulties, for if he clearly developed a battle plan, he evidently never communicated it to those officers charged with carrying it out. Jackson wasn't one to provide details in his on-the-field instructions, and so the Confederate Army at Front Royal may have performed inefficiently due to confused subordinates and staff officers who never knew or misunderstood their missions, and so a smooth and swift victory on May 23rd eluded them. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Three Days in the Shenandoah, Stonewall Jackson at Front Royal in Winchester by Gary Eckelbarger. This is our second Valley Campaign book recommendation penned by Eckelbarger, as you guys will no doubt recall that he was also the author of the book on the Battle of Kernstown that we recommended. Or if you didn't remember that, then don't forget that you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. We enjoy hearing from y'all from both of those places. And then you can always email us, and our contact information is also on the website. We do enjoy hearing from you guys, especially if you have nice things to say. And then we have something nice to say about the one new member added to the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade this past week. Thanks, Rodney. If not for you, we'd be listening to crickets chirping right now in this segment. Okay. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week when we see if Stonewall Jackson can take advantage of his victory at Front Royal and catch and destroy Nathaniel Banks. So that'll be next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.